the station management and the host and producer of the show got in a fight, um, a big fight about the strategy and, and ultimately the ownership of the show. And it was a sort of standoff, which is another kind of like building block between sort of management and artists like in an institution. Who owns it? Whose show is it? Hey, welcome to Culture Hustlers, where we talk with artists, designers, performers, writers, and other entrepreneurs about how they hustled their living by selling culture. I'm your host, Lucas Bivey, a BFA MBA hybrid like a minotaur uh, with the lower extremities of an artist and the mind of a businessman, I guess. I love to talk about art and business, and I'm talking to you from inside the mobile incubator. This is a rolling recording studio inside a 57 Shasta camper. That travels across the U.S. pulled by a 1973 Canadian ambulance because why not? Because it's clearly an emergency situation. Right now, I'm parked down the street from the PRX Podcast Garage in Austin, Mass., which is perfect because today I'm interviewing Jake Shapiro, the co-founder of PRX and Radio Public. PRX, that stands for Public Radio Exchange. Jake's going to tell you what exactly it is, but let's talk about what life was like before PRX. Imagine that you want to make a radio program. You do all the brainstorming, you schedule and record interviews, you research opposing views, you edit that down from maybe 20 hours to just 20 minutes, you write a storyboard, you weave in music, you got to get licensing rights to that music, you got to get permissions from everyone, and now it airs. Once. Just once. In only a 50-mile radius, and nobody else gets to hear it. That's what it was like. Well, PRX changed all that, and Jake's going to tell you about that. Jake knows everything about this. In fact, he knows everything, it seems. So I do want to preface this interview by saying I don't believe Jake is a spy. I mean, I definitely don't believe that Jake is a spy at all. Definitely not. You shouldn't either. You shouldn't believe that. He's not. So I'm Jake Shapiro. I am the co-founder and CEO of Radio Public, and I am also the co-founder of PRX and of Matter Ventures and of three children. <laughs> co-founder of the children. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> so where did you grow up? I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts, not that far away from here. So I've stayed local um, by and large with a few drops into other cities far flung and then keep kind of coming back home. Did you ever live anywhere else or? Yes, I've lived in New York for fits and starts and then I lived for over three years in Moscow, Russia. What were you doing in Moscow? Good question. Um, some of that I can reveal, some of it I have to keep confident. I'm kidding. I see. I'm, kidding. Yeah, no. I'm actually not a spy, although that has sometimes been levied, especially these days. No, I was. Um, He's I studied... in radio. Yeah, <laughs> radio. Um, I had been studying Russian language here at Harvard. I graduated in history and literature. I'd studied there for a summer in 1990, and then when I graduated, decided to move there and worked for a while as a program coordinator at this language and political studies institute. Um, we did a little bit of work with USAID, started a rock band, which is sort of a 
a thread that goes through sort of wherever I am. I need to be playing in some kind of band. And it was right at the moment I landed in the fall of 93, just as the sort of shit hit the fan, the whole standoff between Yeltsin and the parliament and martial law was declared and tanks were on the streets and the whole place was coming apart at the seams. And I had landed thinking that I'd be there for maybe six months and ended up staying for over three years. And why did you stay for three years? I had to know how the story turned out and sort of the fate of not just the country, but um, like the entire world was sort of hanging in the balance for a while. Most people would want to get the hell out of there. It was dangerous for a couple like moments, including the actual October 3rd events where um, the riots broke out and there was like gunfire on the streets and the sort of mob took over the mayor's building and then attacked the TV tower of Stankano and you know, there are folks that I know who got shot and there was like actual blood on the streets. That was truly dangerous. And I was in the thick of it. I'd been supervising a group of students who was going to look at what we thought was going to be a peaceful political parade that turned into this like uh, violence. And then later that same day, martial law was declared. The TV channel started turning off um, and there was lockdown. Now, a few days later was when Yeltsin called out his own tanks onto the streets of Moscow to start shelling the parliament building. Um, which was really dramatic, and um, nobody really knew where it turned. But as is many times the case, like the violence itself was like episodic and really localized and actually kind of small. The major kind of question was whether it would get worse or better, and it sort of stayed stable, and life continued, and uh, I wanted to stick around and see how it all played out, and it was quite an adventure. I mean, that's such a media opportunity to be there at that time, and then, I mean, I find it curious that you ended up in media. At the moment then, it was early days of internet access. And that was... Um, that was the frontier years yeah, of internet. It was. And I had my first sort of set of email accounts and gopher accounts and ability to like log into a server. And that was one of the only ways I could communicate. Because um, otherwise, actually, in those years, in the early years there, in order to make a phone call, you had to take a bus from the outskirts down to the Central Telegraph building in downtown Moscow and schedule a phone call to home um, when we were originally there. So a lot of that made it you know, interesting to think about what the purpose of a network connection was. Um, and certainly at that time too, like this was way pre-media for internet kind of citizen journalism. Um, so I was the storyteller for my own family network, but that was about mm. it. And this is when, you know, it's in interesting that like, some of my friends at the time were writing for the Moscow Times, which was like a Western English publication in Moscow. Um, Ellen Berry and Anne Bernard have gone on to be, you know, global correspondents for the New York Times these days. And like they cut their teeth, like writing about some of that, you know, at the same moment in that generation of expats in, in Moscow in the early 90s. You sound like a spy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I spoke really, I mean, I speak really good Russian. And so that was, that was like part, part of the, mm. you know, my language ability turns out is because I was a musician. So like being attuned to sound. Um, had always been part of the advantage in that whole side of things. So what did you do when you came back? At some point, like three years in, I started to get anxious that like if I didn't leave, I would never leave. And I felt completely sort of lost within it at some point and was like, how am I going to find my footing elsewhere and I need to have some other sort of landing place. And so the sort of imminent excuse actually was that uh, some friends of mine 
who had been musicians I admired a lot and back in Boston were leaving their various bands and forming a new super group and wanted me to come play guitar with the band. <laughs> and I was like, aha, I have a, this is my ticket out. What could, was like not really what a could job. take you away <laughs> from like a revolutionary was starting a rock war band. zone? It's starting a rock band that was in the US. It. That was basically it. So we st- I came back to start a band called Two Ton Shoe and we started our own sort of record label around the same time. And we had a fan of our band who had been someone we knew from earlier incarnations and he was at the MIT Media Lab in the machine listening group, Keith Martin. Um, and he helped me set up our first server and create MP3s and create our email list and we had our own website and we were doing yeah for Why the did you band. start a label instead of just being a band? We were a band and we figured that in order to like represent that we, you know, owned our own publishing rights and could sort of manage our career independently, we also wanted our own label. So uh-huh. that's how we sort of issued our own records under our own. We're very early adopters of independent distribution directly on the web. You know, way before, you know, Napster or way before any of the kind of like music um, disruptions to come, we were experimenting with that in the early days of Tutenshu. What, what were the experiments? Even the MP3s itself. So like there was had, had not been the concept of, of, an, of a file format like MP3 that you could have shareable as a downloadable file off of a CD. MIT was part of creating the spec for the standards around MPEG-3 and MPEG-4. Um, Two-ton shoe, like our music was used in some of the white papers you know it's like <laughs> here's just like a this they needed like you know a freely licensed song to be able to put in the mp3 standards and we were actually one of the groups doing that so this is like 97 96 97 yep my day job because the band was you know performing a lot and recording but not making a lot of money uh, my day job was working at the russian research center at harvard university where so you were a spy I was, exactly. gonna, i'm gonna keep coming back to this you can, you can keep trying <laughs> i can totally keep trying and maybe it'll finally you know corner oh, you me can't admit it you've it. had that trained into no, of course. This is not the forum for that. <laughs> so that was my day gig. And then um, the band started to really grow and sort of our heyday. It was like we were probably playing 120 shows a year, like all over New England and out to California and recording our own albums and distributing them on, you know, on websites. You were distributing them through CDs, too? Yeah. I mean, remember, like, CD Baby had just started. Like, you could, like, sign up to sell, to merchandise your CDs directly into retail. I mean, we did, that was sort of the beginning of this crossover between traditional ways of doing, like, radio promotion and, you know, retail and, like, HMV. And, and This is funny yeah. because so many bands nowadays, that's kind of the way that they, they roll. Now it's, like, embedded as, like, yeah. an outlook on life. If you're an artist coming into this, those tools are almost the first place you start. You know, there was no sort of playlists. There was no, like, easy place to find new things. And, like, if you wanted to discover new things. I mean, you could listen to the radio, but it was the same 20 songs on hit radio. Boston was always fortunate because we have a great collection of, like, college radio stations that actually are really interesting and really pioneering. When did iTunes come out? Like, 2000, 2001. Yeah. 2002. So, like, our sort of the telltale sort of anecdote from that era was mp3.com was one of the first sort of web 1.0 platforms that was trying to help be a discovery launch pad for independent artists and like you know literally that was it mp3.com launch your music here um and it started to take off they did their it was in the heyday of like internet companies succeeding and having like public offerings and like you know making a big thing and we were an early adopter and got to the top of the ranks on yeah. mp3.com and in july of 1999 they did their ipo the company did their ipo um, and they did an unusual thing, which I, has almost never been repeated and which I think should be. 
which is that the founder of the company said, why should we you know, have an IPO where just the bankers and the insiders and the shareholders like get all the value? Like we built this with rock bands helping create the mm, music. Mm-hmm. Why don't we give any band who has an account on the site a chance to buy shares at the offer price? And so we had this amazing moment where he like emailed all the bands who had accounts and said, look, we're going to do our IPO. If you want to buy in on it, then create a Charles Schwab account. You have like two days. You can like cobble together money and you can buy shares at $26 before they go on the market. Yeah. And this is the moment where all of these were going through the roof. And so we got friends and family and like cobbled together a couple thousand dollars and we bought the shares and they went from 26 to like 90 and we sold them, which we weren't supposed to do. And that paid for our <laughs> next album. We bought the band yeah. van. We got like all this gear. And it was just sort of this like emblematic moment where sort of it was you know right at that crossover of the web.com boom, but where at least one of these sites um, recognized that their value was actually like embedded in what the artists themselves were bringing to it, and that those folks should share in the creation yeah. of this platform. And so it was sort of a once in a lifetime slice of that, but something that I've thought about ever since because that's the way we want to create these new places where the artists actually control and own and have a share in the value they're giving. So let's segue that into PRX. Well, the sort of, if you want to get the sort of stepping stone into that, what happened is um, I needed another real day job. Um, The band was doing well, but I wanted to have a full-time job and I ended up getting a dream gig, which was um, interned initially and then got hired as a producer at uh, an NPR show called The Connection with Christopher Lydon. And I was around 2000. But I'd always been a fan of the show. It was an amazing daily call and talk show about life, the universe, and everything. And I got a job. Yeah. So the, that was the dream gig, which I think I would have stick with forever. But what happened was that the station management and the host and producer of the show got in a fight, um, a big fight, about the strategy and, and ultimately the ownership of the show. And it was a sort of standoff, which is another kind of like building block between sort of management and artists like in an institution who owns it whose show is it is it the people who come in every day and produce it or is it the like company where it's produced um and and what do you think to this day well that became you know that that ended up being the origin story in many ways i mean i think that um institutions that have talent as part of their focus and are like enabling creativity and are creating products and shows um, need to be a platform for that talent. They need to give the artist, the creator, the ball at some level, not just creatively, but in some ownership stake or in some participation that goes beyond being a work for hire inside the walls of, a, of an institution. For the sake of this podcast, could you explode out the radio industry just a little bit so folks who are outside the industry can appreciate what you're talking about? Well, public radio is you know, uh, uh, fascinating because it's... Um, decentralized, federated, you know, NPR is not all of public radio. It's the most important national organization that creates and distributes and represents local member stations. But each local public radio station is a separate entity that is governed locally um, as a separate license, you know, has either a community or university kind of board managing it, makes its own decisions about its programming, um, creates content um, if they have the capacity to or curates and presents content from not just NPR but from other distributors and providers and that's where it gets interesting as well if you're a local station you can choose from you know seemingly an infinite menu and then decide if you're able to what kinds of local investments you're going to make in your own content and stations in major cities and markets like Boston tend to have a ambition to create their own, not just local, but often national shows. And WBUR um, has been a really strong station from early days, 
where shows like Car Talk got started, and you know these days you hear here now, and from WGBH you've got The World, um, which is co-distributed by PRI. So there's quite a few more. I mean, Car Talk has continued to stay on in syndication, even though it's like mostly no longer being produced originally. God bless it, because that was the program I listened to growing up. Uh, it was like the gateway drug for many people in the public yeah. radio, because it was an extraordinarily like accessible, funny, addictive show. You didn't have to know anything about cars to enjoy <laughs> no. that show at all. That was all about the personalities and the chemistry. And that, you know, the hostiness, which is something we ended up um, trying to identify as a quality of really great hosts, which is you can list the things that like seem to be criteria for what makes a good radio host but it's really like the x factor it's some kind of hostiness you know they have staff who's producing these shows and that was what my entry point in was as a producer for one of those shows when it all ended up uh kind of blowing up in mutual recriminations and sort of mini scandal in the public radio world um we ended up creating an independent production company with chris Lydon and mary mcgrath Lydon mcgrath productions and we set out on our own um, immediately to sort of do two things. Um, one was to capture, harness this like groundswell of sort of fan listener support mm. because there are a lot of people who are extremely loyal to Chris and love that show and you know they might not have understood but they just wanted to keep listening. And so we created the day after we were all sort of exiled or quit the, the station, ChristopherLine.org, we created like this old PHP nuke like community website. That was the days of like pre, you know, community sites and we managed to have a threaded discussion board and begin posting our own mp3s mm. you know we would just we would go rent out the um, production studios at the christian science monitor we'd record the show sort of in exile it was like the connection in exile and we would self-distribute by putting them up on our own website for community discussion and then we would syndicate them by like sending the files out to other stations who wanted to carry it um and this was 2000 2001 essentially two or three years before podcasting. But it was, you know, an early example of sort of independent public radio self-distribution. What happened is the production company failed to really get its own funding and kind of traction. And we landed at the Berkman Center at Harvard Law School, where which had generously offered some working space for us to like just kind of work out of as an incubator. Um, I ended up needing a day job again. And the job I ended up getting was associate director at the Berkman Center in 2001-2002, where Chris Lydon subsequently became a fellow, and where a year later Dave Weiner became a fellow, and he was the blogging pioneer who'd invented RSS, and it was together that Chris Lydon and Dave Weiner launched the first podcast. They invented podcasting. What is a podcast? Podcast is an MP3 enclosed in an RSS feed and syndicated for distribution as a technical definition. It has a much more important sort of... Uh, There's a social cloud around what its definition is. I mean, I think that part of what was happening at the moment and the origins of podcasting were like intertwined with the origins of blogging and it was like a democratic breakthrough. Democratizing radio. So the idea was like, you know, much like blogging made it possible for anybody to be a writer and for the sort of sources of information and authority and connection to be dispersed and distributed. Podcasting really felt like a similar entire awakening of the potential for anybody to become a broadcaster. And that sort of insight was something that it sort of, it was like an ideal matchmaking of Chris Lydon, who is sort of a poet of, of that kind of impulse and of Dave Weiner, who was, you know, determined to like figure out the independent technology to make that happen. And it was, Chris was going up to cover the Dean campaign in 2004 and three in Vermont. And he would like come back with interviews and post them on his blog. And Dave Weiner, I remember this, like saying, like, it's it's frustrating. I have to go refresh your page. Why can't I just get it in my 
yeah. in my RSS feed the way yeah. I can get my other blogs. And literally that was the, that was, the that was led to podcasting. So in some, this is sort of, you know, the quirky history of these things, like the breaking up of the connection at WBUR leading to the production company, leading to Chris doing his own journalism, leading to being a fellow at Berkman, like accidentally led to the invention of podcasting. And I was a, just a, had a front row seat as the sort of elements of that all happened to coalesce. Um, and which for me, you know, tied back into my interest in helping artists connect with audiences, you know, independently using the internet. You were in a position to really look at the, the market for all that media. Was it a exciting time or was it also kind of a, a head scratching time? I mean, at that moment in 2003, 2004, um, it, the excitement was the beginning of web 2.0 and like the formation of social platforms in the sense that blogging and podcasting were going to open up a much more participatory culture around creation of media. Um, we were ways away from the sort of downside, uh, you know, effect, but I had met up with Jay Allison and the uh, folks at SRG, Tom Thomas and Terry Clifford, who had had an initial um, concept of creating a web-based exchange for independent audio to help stations have access to greater array of stories and help producers reach audiences. They convinced me to apply to become the founding executive director of PRX, and that's what I ended up doing. And it was founded as a... Nonprofit. As a 501c3. We were actually initially incubated within the Station Resource Group, an existing nonprofit, for a number of years before we spun out independently. And uh, sort of at that moment of time, 2002, you know, this was in the dot-com kind of downslope. Um, you know, we were an internet startup, but a nonprofit technology company building a media exchange, and it was the risk capital available It's like at the a time. weird chimera of sorts. Yeah, I mean, the only way to, to like, get that, that idea going was first we had some great stakeholders who were embedded and sort of had standing in the industry, but we had um, some visionary funders, the Ford Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, eventually MacArthur Foundation, and others who recognized that this wasn't just, you know, wasn't just creating an interesting marketplace for audio, um, but was a, almost an R&D investment in the entire industry, understanding mm, this huge shift mm -hmm. that was happening. And that, because the industry could have been hurt by that by that tech change. Absolutely. I mean, that was that has still become the sort of lens through which much of this is seen and understood or feared, which is like, when will we be disrupted? And part of our purpose and role at PRX was to say, let's do this on behalf of everybody ourselves. Like, let's be the vanguard of understanding, deploying, building, experimenting with this technology with the same values and mission and purpose like embedded in what we do, but we'll do it entrepreneurially, we'll do it with technology, we'll do it in a much more open way that is risky in ways that some of the industry didn't that, want to take. That's a hard hybrid to, to steer though, because you mm -hmm. have institutional pressure, you have um, the pressures of being a 501c3 and you have to be mission driven. At the same time, you're trying to be entrepreneurial and have control, but you have a board. I mean, that's an interesting thing to navigate. It is. I mean, I find that to be both um, a difficult balance, but almost the necessary one for this type of impact and moment, where if you don't have these hybrids, um, you end up in a much more rigid position, either like much more sort of fragile because like the disruption will come externally and you don't have any insight or control of it. Um, I think there is a way, and we've continuously experimented this to, to balance those pressures in a way that actually is really um, important to explain and could be a pattern for other moments in industries that are like experiencing these shifts. You know, we made the conscious choice at the outset to be open by leaving it wide open, like unexpected, 
serendipitous, talented people would come to the fore. What is what is a serendipitous talent? So this was bef- you know before podcasting. So someone would spend a year creating an hour long documentary about the Civil War, and it would be air, it would air once on like uh, you know on one show. And the idea was like, why isn't there, you know, access, archival, long tail access that stations Mm -hmm. could have to an incredible body of work that's still highly relevant. And it might be that some station in Indianapolis, like, finds a particular relevance around some story that had aired three months earlier on some other stations. But that was totally opaque and sort of inaccessible. And the mechanics and sort of friction of trying to have the matchmaking were so hard before PRX. We had independent producers who would, in order to market their shows, would print out CDs, send them in mailing uh, packets to stations with a cover letter, try to call the station up, see if they'd listen to it, you know, ask them to sign a distribution agreement, pay them a fee, which they wouldn't do, and like see if they could get it aired one at a time on each station. That's an incredible amount of work and a whole lot of risk to get the audience what they were desiring to hear in the first place. Exactly. So we, we tried to completely rethink that and streamline it and change the incentives. You know, we created a marketplace where stations would pre-purchase a number of hours that they thought they might want to get and then basically have points to spend that felt like monopoly money, but they would spend points acquiring radio shows. We need 100 hours of programming. Mm-hmm. You know, here's our deposit yeah. and then we'll just pull the shows. And then we the would, and then we track all the downloads and pay the producers based on what was used. So that was the first incarnation of PRX, which remains the core marketplace today. But even then, we started to see what was starting to grow then as the direct distribution um, beyond broadcast. Well, how does someone get onto the public radio exchange? So PRX.org is still an open marketplace where anybody can create an account and upload their audio, make it available to local public radio stations for broadcast. Um, and you just fill out a field, you get a free amount of storage. If you want to have more storage or be paid for your licenses, then you have to pay a nominal amount to have a paid account. But there's no sort of gatekeeping. You're not being like reviewed. It's uh, wide open. You know, in addition to building that over the years, started to expand what it does to represent some top shows um, like The Moth. So we helped develop The Moth Radio Hour. Then we, a few years later, launched the Radiotopia Podcast Network. We continued to expand the technology part and built a number of um, apps that were sort of early experiments in what radio should be like on mobile devices. Radio Public is a spin-out? Mm-hmm. It, it, does it have a formal relationship with PRX? Is it the owner or...? I'll explain it. So, you know, PRX um, has been serving producers as its primary customers. Um, but what we recognized on the digital domain, podcasting in particular, was that there was a huge missing piece on the platform side, where people were listening, where listeners were finding, discovering, and engaging mm-hmm. with it. Mm-hmm. We were relying on Apple and other companies to try to provide that last mile of connection. You know, in public radio, it's the local station, but in podcasting, it's Apple yeah. or other companies. And yep. we realized that Apple wasn't giving us some of the things that we really wanted to be able to do, for example, ask the Radiotopia listeners to donate directly, you know, using the fact that they're listening in the app. Could be, you know, hey, come buy my book or come to my event or go to the, you know, buy a T-shirt because you're a fan. There's many, many different places where that works. So that engagement, which has been missing from podcasting, is finally able to occur in the place where you're actually listening on an app, you know, while you're commuting or driving or anything else. And there's about 12 of us working on it, including uh, two co-founders who came with me from PRX. And the idea is to create a platform for podcasts that helps listeners discover, engage with, and reward the creators of podcasts. Uh, We have a podcast librarian who does curation and helps introduce new listeners, in particular people who are new to podcasting, to help discover shows that they hadn't heard of before. Um, Rather than build that internally as another product of PRX, 
at risk of distraction or of cost or of other kinds of problems, we decided to create a separate company. Okay. So when I say spin out, it meant that I and two other people from the PRX team left PRX, created a new company called Radio Public. PRX is the founder of that company, so it owns part of the company and it is a partner Got to it. the company. Yeah. Radio Public is a for-profit public benefit corporation, and PRX is a non-profit 501c3. Uh, we won't go into uh, what's a public benefit corp, but for listeners, they should definitely look into that. There's very fascinating different types of entities that you can file based on what state you're in. Yeah, we are a Delaware PBC, and uh, it's a whole obsession of mine as well, which at some later date, happy to be a resource for folks who are curious about that form. So I think we should move into questions. Mm-hmm. This is, uh, she's a member of PRX Podcast Scratch. Hi, Lucas. This is Andrea Moraskin. I'm the producer of Next, a show about New England. And my question for Jake Shapiro is, how do you grow your podcast audience? Thanks. I would suggest starting with creating an amazing product. So a huge amount of the opportunity to grow an audience really rests on the distinctiveness and quality of the show itself. Finding and identifying and thinking about a target audience. So like the next step I would say is like, think about a specific audience. If you can define in a, in a phrase who the audience is for this show, um, which is sometimes challenging if you're doing a broad kind of like thematic show that you feel like everybody should want to listen to this. Like they're sort of getting over a feeling of like, this is for everybody and it belongs alongside fresh air on the radio. And instead of being like, okay, I, I think for this there's, you know, this is for flower growers, you know, who are interested in botany. Yeah. And part of that too is you might want to acknowledge what your own particular take is mm-hmm. on broad issues. Yes. Like we're talking about broad issues, but my lens is always going to be as a political science student or something exactly. like that. And so that then leads to a whole series of things um, through content marketing, through email newsletters, which I highly endorse because email is the one channel that you really kind of can control your mm. voice and expression and direction with. And you don't have to pay for it the same way you do on Facebook. Speaking of media channels, I have another question. Mm-hmm. Hi, Lucas. Congrats on your new show. My name is Nisi Panetta, and I'm the co-host of a new show, which is launching November 7th, called The Midterms Podcast. And we're dedicated to bringing our listeners a weekly up-close look at the 2018 congressional midterm elections. My question for Jake Shapiro is about data. As a new show just launching, what metrics should we be looking at most closely? And what should we know about where the development of audience metrics is headed both with Apple and the other platforms like Radio Public. Thanks so much. Take care. What metrics actually matter? It, these days, are, we're still in sort of primitive times for podcasting um, compared to other media for insight into metrics. So downloads and plays um, very much are the fundamentals that still exist and that you're likely to be able to get reliably from your hosting provider. Um, if you are on platforms like Spotify that might give you a finer-grained look at the listening rates and the drop-off rates, you can start to pay attention to things like, hey, it tends to be that three minutes in, a lot of listeners are dropping off, and so you might want to rethink how you do your intros. Generally speaking, making the beginning of a podcast really gripping is a good strategy, as you might expect. Like Headline writers have done that for a long time. Um, but it's as simple as that. And then you might separately just do a small focus group or a survey as soon as you reach a critical mass of a couple hundred listeners and see anecdotally if they can give you some feedback. And that's something you could then take to a partner or a sponsor and say, you know, my listeners, you know, have, like love this about me and that's why I'm valuable to you. Yeah. All right. Next question. Uh, 
what are some alternative but realistic ways to monetize podcasting? I think that um, right now, in addition to sponsorship revenue, crowdfunding through sites like Kickstarter and Patreon um, and other ones that are cropping up, I think is really important and very much worth investing and cultivating from early days. If you're building a community, you know, one of the things we've always cited is the Kevin Kelly article of a thousand true fans. Um, mm. You know, it's worth Googling again. He wrote it over a decade ago, but it's, you know, it's a truism just about mm. if you create something distinctive and you're an artist and you can reach your thousand true fans and those thousand fans, as opposed to the hundred thousand that you could reach through an ad and try to get a CPM. If those thousand true fans who really love what you do will support you, you know, that's a business model. That's a sustainable business model. So I'd look to that. And then, of course, there's these ancillary sort of revenue streams of trying to do live events or tours or merchandise. Musicians have been in this game for a long time and have figured out which ones of those tend to work. Podcasters are just kind of relearning mm. um, some of those things. Um, but I'm an advocate for balancing sponsorship if you can get it um, and direct crowd support if you can cultivate it. Well, those are really good answers. I, I really can't imagine someone better to, to ask these questions to. I'm glad to be able to. Thanks for coming in. I'm sorry about the dog shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's funny. I'm glad I caught it early. It could have gotten much worse. So pretty helpful to have a Q&A with someone who's been around for the whole invention of the podcast. So I hope that this was really helpful to a lot of podcasters out there. And if it wasn't, well, don't worry. You can still ask more questions. You can ask your question on the Ask a Hustler hotline. Call or text 978-712-8858. That number again is 978-712-8858. Or you can tweet or Instagram at Mobile Incubator. Tune in next episode for a really cool Q&A with Hilkin Mancini, the founder of Girls Rock Campaign Boston and 40 South, and co-founder of Punk Rock Aerobics. Yes, it's exactly as cool as it sounds. She is simply amazing, and I'm possibly in love. You can follow my travels on themobileincubator.com and Instagram. Tune in for live stream workshops on Facebook and Periscope, and check out more podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, and the Public Radio Exchange. And this is Lucas Bivey signing up. Tell me, what, what's what's going to go? What's going to happen when you leave this uh, this camper right now? I'm going to walk two blocks down the street to the Harvard Launch Lab, where we have a co-working space, and the Radio Public team is working out of it. So we're only about a year into Radio Public; it's brand new. Definitely encourage both podcast producers, creators, others who either listen to or create podcasts to check it out because we're creating all kinds of tools to help you grow your audience and then engage your audience and. You know, right so now the answer to open. most of the questions that were asked is Radio Public. Yeah, go to radiopublic.com <laughs> and it's all there for you. Thousands of people downloading it right now. Awesome. <laughs>